0: Welcome to the Faith Bridge Sermons Podcast. Today's sermon is brought to you by founding pastor Ken Warline. and it was recorded on Sunday, January 8th, 2023. And hey, if you're ever in the area, join us on campus on a Sunday at 9am or 11am and come say hi in person. And you could also follow us on Instagram at faithbridge to see what goes on during the week. And as always, you could join us every Sunday for our online service called FaithBridge Live at faithbridge.org live. Here's Ken. Well, good morning, and if it's your first time here, welcome. If it's your first time back since Christmas Eve, welcome back. I'll say one more happy new year. And I hope particularly today that you will take a moment or two and stay afterwards, go over to the East Atrium and take part in the Ministry Expo. It's a great on-ramp Sunday, an opportunity for you just to see the, the op, all sorts of on-ramp opportunities for you. Grow groups and serve teams and grow classes. And, and I want you to be able to come into the fullness of what's going on here in the life of the church. And have friends and be involved in your spiritual growth beyond just the Sunday morning. So take advantage of that but first before i let you loose to go and do that i want you to take your bibles and we're going to turn to the book of acts in the new testament acts chapter one and if you need a bible we'll have ushers in uh both of our rooms and that's our gift to you if you need a bible and i should say mentioning both of our rooms welcome this morning If you're in Center Court East, and if you're online, wherever you are, we're glad that you're worshiping with us today. So, I wonder if uh, you've noticed something that I've noticed, and that is a spirit of cynicism in our society. It's a brand new year, loaded with potential, but they're already telling us how very bad 2023 is going to be. Recession is imminent. The economy is tanking. Your flight is getting canceled. New variants are coming. The House of Representatives is something. And if you follow church news, it's easy to grow discouraged even in the church as megachurch pastor after pastor plunges and falls out with immorality and lies that come into the open. And the rest of us who follow Christ and who are called Christians, we get dinged because of that. Even those of us who are trying to let our lights shine in this world by following Christ faithfully. You focus on any of these, and it's easy to become jaded and cynical and distrusting and discouraged. And I start here because I was reflecting on it this past week. I felt like God reminded me. We're not the first generation to come along and to feel some of these feelings. No, every generation has had to deal with the realities of a fallen world. And if we lived 20 centuries ago in the days of Jesus, we surely would have been in touch with the fallenness of the world. The Roman world was a terribly dark world, violent and licentious and idolatrous and immoral. And so you can imagine, therefore, the astounding breath of fresh air that Jesus represented when he comes into the world, the light of the world, full of darkness, here comes the light. He speaks Jesus as only truth. He loves saint and sinner alike. He loved his disciples. He'd taught them, He'd inspired them, He'd challenged them, He'd led them, He'd sent them out on mission. He'd celebrated with them. Sometimes he sort of confused them, but the, the, the Lord, he loved his disciples like nobody they'd ever experienced. Before. And then, just as the momentum was peaking, just as the crowds were swelling into the thousands, he's betrayed, Jesus was. And he died a violent death on a cross. And his disciples were devastated like they've never felt devastated. And they were confused because they're thinking, was he not really the Messiah? Because if he was the Messiah? He wouldn't have died because the Savior won't die. And then, confounding all expectations, he arose from the dead. And now they were ecstatic. They were rejoicing. They could hardly wait. They're wondering, Jesus, what's your next act? What's the next thing going to be? How do you follow that up? What's your sequel? to which Jesus says, the sequel, the sequel is going to be you. You are going to take this message of how I came from the father into this sin darkened world and how I lived the life of sinlessness you couldn't live, and how I died the death of punishment you deserved, and how I conquered the grave you would never conquer, so that you and anybody who ever comes along could trust not in their own secure accomplishments, but in the accomplishment I've secured in the cross and resurrection. That's the message you'll take forward. You're going to be my witnesses, he tells them here in Jerusalem and then Judea and then Samaria, even Samaritans. We're supposed to hate the Samaritans, right? Nope, we're going to get to that. And even to the ends of the earth, you're going to be my sequel, Jesus is telling them. You're going to come together and you're going to comprise what the Bible calls the ecclesia in the original language. That's the word we translate, church. You're going to become this, this dynamic powerful thing together, sort of like a supercharged magnet that other people are going to see what's happening in your souls and just get sucked in, sort of like into a vortex. And they're going to become part of the community. Then more people are going to come and be a part of what's going on. And one more thing Jesus says, I'm going to go ahead and go back to heaven because my mission now is accomplished. But that's really a good thing. Don't worry about that. He assures them because it's, it's good that I go. Because if I go, and only if I go, can I then send my Holy Spirit who will come. And the good thing about the Holy Spirit coming is while I have walked beside you for three years... He will travel inside. He'll journey inside of you, and you'll have a power like you've never experienced before. And at this, you can picture their mouths just hanging open, gaping, not with excitement, but gaping in shock and disbelief. You know, the disciples are like, What? You're leaving us? Your sequel? Jesus, we're not qualified to be your sequel. (laughs) You shouldn't trust us. We don't even trust us. Look at us. We're a bunch of messed up, goofy, flawed, dysfunctional, unstable, irrational, spiritual second stringers. We can't possibly be your sequel. What's plan B? Jesus says, no plan B. You are my sequel. And sure enough, Just as Jesus said would happen, God's spiritual lightning would strike those original Christians. Ten days later, when the Holy Spirit came, and sure enough, outsiders did start wanting to come in to what was happening there. And 120 turned into 500. It's turned into 1,000 and then 3,000 and then multiple thousands. And then decades later, they crossed a million and more millions. And all this while Roman emperors were doing their best to try to snuff it out. And they were torturing the, the Christians and trying to kill them off and get rid of this thing. And there's just growth happening. And more people are getting saved. And more people are coming to know Jesus Christ and the power of his soul. Holy Spirit living inside of them to the point where finally, three centuries later, the Roman emperor had to acknowledge his society was a Christian society. It was the Christians and the Christians alone that were holding the world together. That's our history, but we need to back up. The very best historical document that chronicles what happened in those first days of the early Christian church comes in Luke's second book It's called Acts. That's the book that we're going to be looking at this year. You remember Luke from our journey last year through his first book called the gospel of Luke who was Luke let's remind ourselves he was a medical doctor Dr. Luke was and he writes both of these books to this Theophilus he starts both books saying "Here, Theophilus whose ide- we the problem with Theophilus we never quite entirely clearly understand who Theophilus was but it makes a lot of sense scholars surmise that he might well have been a roman official who had converted to following christ he'd converted to christianity and as a roman official he had money so he hires luke says, I want to understand this faith that I've stepped into. And so I want to hire you, Luke, to go and to be my private investigator. And I want you to interview all the people that were there. And I want you to put together an orderly account so that I can really understand this. And so go to those original disciples and go find his mother, Mary, and interview them and ask them what really happened. And why would Theophilus hire a doctor? Because doctors love facts. They always want to get your vitals. They always want to get the readings. They want to get everything right. And so it makes sense. And we know that he was a doctor because we, we can see, even in the original language, Luke would use medical terms when he was describing a healing. Or something. It doesn't come through as much in English, but you could, he was dropping a medical term right there. And so like Matthew, Mark, and John, Luke gives us the details of Jesus' life. That's his first book, but better than Matthew, Mark, and John. Luke goes one further and gives us volume two that then takes us through What happened after Jesus was raised? What happened after he went back into heaven? What happened to those original months and years of the early Christian movement? So what we're going to do today and this year is we're going to step up, if you will, behind Theophilus and we're going to peer over his shoulder as he reads what Luke wrote for him to better understand his faith. Chapter 1, verse 1. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day that he was taken up to heaven. And after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles, he had chosen. And after his suffering, Jesus presented himself to them and he gave them many convincing proofs that he was alive. He appeared to them. Over a period of 40 days, and spoke about the kingdom of God. And on one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my Father has promised, which you've heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. And then as they gathered around him, they asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said, It's not for you to know the dates or the times. The Father has set by his own authority. But You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And after he said this, Jesus was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. And as they were looking intently up into the sky as he was going, suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them, angels, who said, men of Galilee. Why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way one day as you see seen him go. Now, again, we had to ask the question when we start in on Luke how in the world could 120 paltry, poor, Uninfluential ragtaggers, how could that little band of those 120, how could they multiply into thousands against all odds and then eventually millions and then eventually 20 centuries later sweeping you and even me into it? How could that ever have happened? We have to go back and we have to look and see what did they do right? Because I think if we can figure out what did they do, right, then maybe we could better position ourselves so that God's spiritual lightning might strike again and do another spiritual awakening in our midst and in our land. And so in this text, we're going to see two things that Luke is telling us, two things he's pinpointing that we'll call the irreducible essentials to a spiritual Awakening. The first one is this. The message, their message was clear, crystal clear. The problem I think nowadays is that many who name the name of Christ, we're not clear on message. We're not message clear. Even professing believers, we get fuzzy on this. I bet you've heard people say, and maybe you've even said yourself, well, you know, all religions are about the same. You know, be kind to others, be nice, be good, do the right thing, be loving, you know, be moral. And and the secular media piles on as well, and they say there's no possible way that any religion could be better or truer than the next one. And probably they say no religion at all would be the best religion until DeMar Hamlin falls over on Monday night. Did you see that in the Wall Street Journal? How Damar Hamlin drove a nation to pray. We were watching the game. My boys and I were like, oh my gosh, I think he might be dead. Well, he kind of was. And they were suscitating, and all of a sudden, even in that moment, they were saying, it's okay, let's go ahead and pray. You saw Overlowski do that on ESPN. And you got the sense that they who were sitting with him praying and said, amen, they meant it. It's interesting, isn't it? Deep down in the depths of our soul, we know that there is a king and that he is there and that he leaves, that He wants to hear us talking to him and that he can do miracles. But we listen to what the media mostly, usually says, and it's easy for those of us even who are Christian to, to start concluding. Well, I guess maybe, maybe they are a little bit kind of all alike. and one half does another. So if you're Christian or Muslim or Buddhist or Hindu or whatever it is, at least you're trying something, you know, it's, as long as you don't make anybody feel guilty or as long as you don't hurt their feelings, you know, that's the main thing. They want to make sure that we understand. And if Luke were, under, were here uh, and living still, he would say, Stop! No, Christian. You must understand that's not the message of Christianity. Our message is not that Jesus came to give us a list of teachings, a list of things that you need to do. Try to be nicer. Try to be better. Try to be more moral. Try to be more forgiving. Although he was all for all those things, but Luke would say, no, 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 no. But you have to understand the crux, the bedrock of our faith is that our leader came from God in heaven to earth and that he was crucified and that he was dead and that he was buried and that he was raised to life. And in so doing, he was wiping away all of the residue of sin and depravity that separated us from a holy God, and then after he was raised 40 days later to punctuate the finality of his ministry, he ascended back to heaven where he sits at the right hand of the Father. Luke would say, that's our message. Get message clear. Now, if you're not a believer, and some of you aren't believers, you came because somebody said, would you please, until you're, oh, I don't really believe in this stuff, but I'm glad that you're here. And the reason I'm glad that you're here is because I want to just have a chance to talk to you just a brief minute and say, you know, I would fully expect, as I'm talking about this, that you would say, I don't know if if I believe that. Why? In fact, you might ask. Why do you believe that? I mean, why, how can you be so confident about this resurrection? How do you know that Christ really was raised? That is easy. All you have to do is read history, not just biblical history. You can look at secular history as well, and you will see it's a historical fact that there was this group of people who came along called Christians who did say, he's alive, he is Lord. And it is an historical fact that those Christians would be persecuted. Some of them burned at the stake, some of them beheaded, some of them crucified, some later when the Colosseum, they'd be put into the Colosseum and the lions would be unleashed as thousands of people jeered at them and hollered out, are you sure that Jesus is Lord? You want to change your story now? And the Christians kept saying, nope, not changing my story, he's alive and he is Lord, and I'll be okay because the same God who raised him will raise me one day. So I can't lose. To live is Christ, but to die is gain. I'll be with him. I win either way. Go ahead if you must. And that's why Luke is telling us in verse three so clearly. He doesn't get three verses in. He says, you have to understand this. After his suffering, he, Jesus, presented himself to them and gave many convincing proofs that he was alive. What proofs? How many? Well, we don't know exactly how many. But we do know at least that a dozen times or more scripture gives us these snapshots of Jesus in his post-resurrected form meeting with the early Christians. He was dropping in on them. How many of those people did he? Well, we don't the, the The highest number we see is Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 at one point, 500 people saw him. But they not only saw him, they talked with him. That comes through in these interactions. In verse four of our text today, as well as in some other texts, you see he even ate with them. And that's really important because at first they thought, wait a second. Are you real? Can we touch you? Eat this piece of fish. And if the fish dropped through, clunk, you know, and hits the ground. He's like, okay, you're a phantom. But he it didn't. It's like, you're really here. The food's really in there somewhere, you know? And, and so he ate with them. And then we know in John 20, that some even touched him. Doubting Thomas says, I having a hard time to I need to put my fingers in the holes where the nails were. And Mary Magdalene had hugged him. He said, no, 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 I don't want you to cling to me I'm going to have to go. But it's good that I go because my spirit's going to come. So let me go. And <clears throat> so we have this proof, these proof. And, and why is Luke trying to make sure that Jesus was making very sure to these early original Christians, you got to be sure that you're sure that you're sure that I am alive. Because Jesus knew the day is going to come when they're gonna lay you down on your own cross and right about the time they start to hammer the first nail or you're being burned at the stake and when they chain you up and they light the fire on that stake underneath your feet or when they unleash the doors and the lions who haven't eaten for a week come charging out at you. Right at that point, if you're not sure that you're sure that you're sure, I know what will happen. You'll fold quicker than the blink of of an eye. You'll change your mind. You'll pull off. You'll say, you know what, on second thought, I just came to my senses, he's not alive. New story. It's interesting, there was this guy called Chuck Colson. Many of you haven't heard of him. There came up an age of people who don't know Chuck Colson, so let me tell you about him. It's really interesting. He was President Nixon's hatchet man 50 years ago in the famous Watergate conspiracy. And when the truth of that scandal Finally came out, Coulson. He had to go to prison. And along the way, he was introduced to Christ. And Coulson put his trust in Jesus Christ, came into a vibrant relationship, was saved and came to know Christ and, and became a, a very, he's a very smart man. He was, a, he was a sound thinker and a profound Christian thinker and influencer and speaker and author for the rest of his life. And he started a ministry called Prison Fellowship that goes on through this day, though he has gone back to heaven some years ago. So anyhow, they asked Chuck Colson, <clears throat> why do you believe in the resurrection? 20 centuries after the fact. Colson said, that's easy. Because <laughs> I'm telling you, there's no possible way those Christians could have stayed with their story of the resurrection 20 years and 30 years and 40 years, taking the hits that they would take and dying the deaths that they would die. All the original apostles dying brutal deaths of martyrdom except the apostle John. He says, there's no way they would have stayed with their story unless it was true. And he says, the reason I know that is because I was an integral player in one of the most famous cover-ups in American history, along with the 10 of us. We couldn't hold our lie together for two weeks before they started cracking like eggs and the truth started coming out because they wanted to save their own skin. He says, that's how I know that they knew, that they knew, that they knew. So we can know that we know that we know. That's why Luke starts out. And so, knock yourself out. Take in your college classes, take comparative religion. I did it, it's, it's, they're interesting. Read the Quran, and read from the Bhagavad Gita. Just remember, there's only one who can save you. And his name is Jesus. He's the only one who ever conquered death. So, that's the one you wanna strap your wagon to. Now, I'm leaning into this because I think in this day and age and in this culture that many of us are growing apprehensive and we're afraid to tell other people, I don't want to hurt your feelings. You know, and, and so we, we draw back and we buy into what the media tells us and we don't share our faith with other people. But take me as an example. I'll tell you a story. Eight years ago to the day, next Sunday, will represent eight years since the day I nearly died. Many of you have come in since then. I don't have time to tell the whole story, but briefly I'll just tell you a series of no less than a dozen providences, divinely orchestrated things in the calendar of my day that I had no idea were going to happen. Finally, culminated with my sitting in the office of a cardiologist in the, Houston, in the Texas Medical Center called Stuart Solomon. And Dr. Solomon quickly assessed, you don't have indigestion, which you came here thinking. You're getting ready to have a massive coronary. And he put me into his car and he drove me to the hospital saying, I've got to get you into the cath lab quickly. He pushed me in a wheelchair to where they could get me in that cath lab and put me under and go into my LAD artery, put a stent in that opened me back up, afterwards telling me, it's a good thing we came because you were just hours away. Your Widowmaker was 99.9% blocked. Tonight would have been your final night. It was going to make a widow out of you. And I tell you, I can tell that story, and I still do tell that story. And I'm moved, and I'm excited, and I'll share with anybody who let me share it with them. Why? Because it's good news. It's the story of my physical salvation. But you, you have a story of salvation as well. Maybe not a physical salvation, but you have a story of your spiritual foundation of salvation. If you put your heart and your trust into Jesus Christ, you just have to realize it's it's just it's sort of like this suppose you were in a burning building and you were trapped and you couldn't get out and it's closing in on you and the ceiling's going to collapse on you and all of a sudden just in the nick of time a fireman jumps in and gets you out and pulls you out and you're catching your breath and you're trying to figure out what just happened and somebody says Well, what just happened? You're not going to say, "Ah, I don't want to hurt your feelings. I'm not going to bother telling you. You would say, oh, good news. That man, that man, that fireman came and he saved me. And in the same way, Luke is telling us that Jesus jumped into our world that was headed towards the flames of destruction and says, I will save you as well. Good news. You can have life. That's why he says in verse eight, you're going to be my witnesses. What's a witness? It's a legal term. Think court of law. What's a witness? It's a person who saw it. You can't be a witness if you didn't see it. But if you have been a witness, you, you, you got to tell the truth. You got to say, here's what happened. I saw it with my own eyes. And that's what Luke is emphasizing here at the start. We can know that we know that we know because they who were there, they knew that they knew that they knew. And that's our confidence. That's why the first essential to spiritual dynamism and to an awakening, revival, is that we have to be mission clear, filled with the truth of the gospel. But there's a second thing, briefly. The early church, you see it in this text, their hearts were also filled with the Holy Spirit their souls were filled with the holy spirit did you see that in verse 4 he says now i want you to go back and you're going to wait in jerusalem don't go charging out yet with this message until you're baptized with the holy spirit and verse 6 is kind of funny because they're confused and they say jesus are you telling us you're getting ready to restore the kingdom of israel you're going to blast the romans you're going to cut caesar down to size you're going to seize the throne and you picture jesus even though he's so patient and gracious I'm sure he was thinking, oh, Holy Spirit, I hope you can get further with these guys than I've been able to get, you know? He says, "Um, it's it's not a day and a time. And how many times do I tell you? It's not an earthly kingdom that I've come to start. This is not a worldly kingdom thing. So back to what I was saying, guys. You're going to go and you're going to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit. That word is Dunamis. In the original, it means dynamite. The power of the Holy Spirit is going to fill you. Then you'll be message message clear. You'll be empowered with my spirit. So you don't go tiptoeing in saying, well, maybe I should tell you this. No, 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 you'll have authority. To say, I have to tell you good news. You'll be authorized. You're not going up and saying, well, maybe one day there will be a king. And his name is Jesus. Would you like to hear about him? No, you're going in to say, hey, there is objectively a king of all kings. And you need to know about him because he can save you too. And his name is Jesus. Let me tell you about some good news. That's what Jesus was telling them. When I think of being filled with the Holy Spirit, I think of a Seen in our family's life some years ago we went to Galveston one of the boys said we've never been to the beach I said to Suzanne we're terrible parents and so we said we're going to Galveston they don't know there's Maui <laughs> but Galveston's what we got so that's where we went and so we're driving along a seawall boulevard and one of the boys points out and says look at that dad see those birds, the seagulls, they don't flap their wings. It's like that's kind of interesting. They're just sailing along, right, when, as we're driving along. how? Do... So I was befuddled and trying to figure out, well, how do they do that? Most birds have to flap their wings. So I did a little research and found out, well, there's this thing called thermals, and that is the hot summer air that's coming off the sand. It's coming off the beach. It's coming off the, the The pavement of the road. These hot blasts of hot air are going up. And so the seagulls, all they have to do is hold their wings out, and those thermals carry them, and they just sail along effortlessly. And the more I thought of it, the more I thought, that's exactly what the Holy Spirit wants to be for you and me. He wants to be the divine thermal that's just carrying us along, that's giving us the words to say, that's giving us the thoughts and the actions that we're going to follow through on. We're learning how to be filled with his Holy Spirit and carried along with him. The problem with many of us, I'll say at least for me, is that that requires surrender. And some of us who are a little bit of control freaks, We tend to sometimes say, Lord, I surrender mostly. But this time, I think I'll take back over because I think if I do this one, maybe we'll get there a little bit faster. Maybe we'll get there a little quicker. Maybe we'll get there a little bit better. To which the Lord surely is going, why do you keep doing that? Let me fill you with my spirit because you'll always go further, faster, and longer if you would let me carry you. That's the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm going to stop there because I want you to have some time to go to the ministry expo. And because next week we'll talk more about the Holy Spirit as we come into his arrival 10 days later in this early church. But for now, what I want you to consider is something I've been considering. And that is, friends, the early church, that's not the last time. That the Christians got their message crystal clear, and the power of the Spirit began to work, and lives began to be changed. That's not the last time it happened. Oh no, it happened again in the 1500s in the Protestant Reformation, under the leadership of Luther and Calvin and others. And then it happened again in the 1700s when the match to God's to, to, to God's Spirit was struck inside of John and Charles Wesley. And George Whitefield in England and and revival began to start happening. And people started turning from their wicked ways and saying, I I, I need God in my life. I want to know Christ. And 50 years later, England was a different transformed place while France had spiraled into revolution. What happened? God's spirit and the truth of the clear gospel was trumpeting forward in England. And then it happened again in the 1900s, 60 years, 80 years ago, when Chairman Mao of China closed China off to Christianity, killed many of the Christian missionaries, or at least sent them out. And there was 2 million Christians. And many around the world said, well, that's the end of Christianity there. If they ever open up China again, there'll be no more Christians. That's not what happened. Those 2 million people, they didn't get extinguished into nothing They multiplied so that when several decades later the bamboo curtain went back up and China became freer, what did they find? They found 60 million believers. Why? Because God was doing a new thing. His spirit had come and the church was growing again there in China. It's happened throughout history and I've been praying that it would happen Again, now, here. And I'm not the only pastor praying that. In fact, there's a a group of us, a pretty good sized group, uh, to some extent, all associated with the Houston Church planting network around Houston. And we've all agreed, what if in the month of January we were all praying, not just us, but you? All of our churches begin to pray, God, would you do it again? Would your next thing be here in our community and in our greater city of Houston? Why don't you do it again here as we become message clear with the gospel? And as we're filled with the power of your spirit, that's what I'm praying. That's what I want to invite you to join us in praying for in this year. 2023, as we journey through the book of Acts. Let's pray together. Lord, thanks for the power of your Holy Spirit. Thanks for thanks for your love. Thank you, God, uh, for the work that you do within us. And that you. You're never done. You're never finished. We don't have to just look back and only see what you did in history. We could actually make history and we could be the tools that you would use again. Lord, I'm praying that you would do that in our church, in our community, in our lives and in our city. Lord, wouldn't you do a new work? Come with your Holy Spirit. Give us message clarity and confidence and eagerness to share this good news that it might happen again. And if you're here and you've not said yes to Jesus yet, why don't you even now just say, Jesus, I'm asking you to come into my life. Forgive me of my sins. Cleanse me of unrighteousness. And fill me full of your spirit. Teach me what it means to follow you as we journey through this book of Acts. All the days of my life. I want to be... One of yours. And we pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen.